Uh, good evening, everybody. My name is Simon Morrison, and uh, I teach music appreciation in central New Jersey. And I'm also a visiting professor here at USC. Uh, I'm very grateful to the Los Angeles Philharmonic for the opportunity to be here tonight, and especially for the opportunity to speak with uh, a great, great artist, a wonderful teacher, a wonderful communicator, always the most insightful person in the room, that is Peter Sellers. And um, it's one of these artists whose work um, changes people's lives, and he certainly changed mine. Um, the performance of this very rare work, uh, Persephone, um, is important for several reasons that we're going to talk about in terms of the circumstances of our present-day world. But I just want to um, say a few things about Mr. Stravinsky, besides the fact that his house in Los Angeles is currently for sale. <laughs> uh, no one wants to buy it because the kitchen is in a state. Um, <laughs> and I believe the ring for the goat is still there in the front yard. Um, <laughs> Um, he came from uh, the middle of nowhere in a very great nation called Russia, the Russian Federation. He came from a village there and he received his education in St. Petersburg at the conservatory, which was actually a fairly new institution at that period of time. And then uh, well before the Russian Revolution or Russian coup d'etat, as I like to refer to it, he relocated to Paris and there achieved fame. And he achieved fame with an organization known as the Ballet Russe or the Russian Ballet. And the fame he achieved um, was principally in 1913, May 29th, 1913, at 7.30 p.m., uh, when um, a, a ballet of sorts called The Rite of Spring was premiered. He was 31 years old at this moment in time, and uh, he had a shocking success, a success that was built in part because the choreography of this ballet was disturbing for a lot of people. At least that's what the reviews su suggest, although there's a lot of dispute about what really happened that night. Uh, but he had this incredible success, notoriety instantly, fame, infamy at age 31. Um, and he never, in a way, outlived that success. He carried with it, it with him throughout the rest of his long life. Um, Stravinsky crossed a lot of borders. Um, he crossed borders between Russia and Eastern Europe and then Western Europe, and then ultimately he ended up here in Los Angeles. He crossed borders. He was somebody who was polyglot, who spoke many languages. He crossed borders. He crossed worlds. And the work you're going to see staged tonight um, is a work that crosses worlds. And what those worlds are and what that crossing is all about is something I think we're going to uh, find out a lot about in the next few minutes. Um, Mr. Stravinsky's style was also polyglot, his musical style. He changed a lot. Uh, when he came to Paris, he trafficked in what some people call new nationalism. That is the kind of a new Russian sound or a kind of heightened exotic sound, which was something I imagine appealed to um, the fantasies, the imaginations of Paris listeners. Um, after that, he switched for complicated reasons, I think to do with the border crossings, perhaps to do with a kind of repression or suppression of certain truths, he moved into a style known as neoclassicism. And neoclassicism is little understood, although much talked about, and my colleagues in music theory write books about it in a ways that um, render it fairly sterile. Um, that neoclassicism is music that suggests roots in the past, uh, but this music is thought to be pure and absolute or unsentimental or unemotive. And I think you'll see and hear tonight that that 
is not true. There's deep feeling here. Um, but this neoclassicism is associated with a certain type of cinematic wipe or cleaning of the palette of musical syntax. It's not really about the past. It's a kind of nostalgia, and nostalgia is always about something that never really existed in the first place. Um, and then in America, Stravinsky, for peculiar reasons, adopted a style of composition that's numeric, it's arithmetic, known as serialism. And serialism was, I guess, born as a style in Germany, uh, but really developed here in the United States. And my home institution, uh, Princeton University, is responsible for a great deal of this type of music, which listeners don't necessarily like, and which is known derivatively or derogatively as PhD music, <laughs> or who cares if you listen music. <laughs> Um, but again, with Stravinsky, the tale is very, very complicated in terms of crossing of borders and musical languages. So a fellow from the Russian village, somebody who had a fling with Coco Chanel, somebody who fraternized with Hollywood people, and somebody who was the greatest musical genius of the 20th century, according to the academic consensus. He created more than one work about springtime. The first of them is that notorious work from 1913 called The Rite of Spring. And that's a work that um, is read and interpreted in different ways. It's seen as a very grim biological parable about a maiden who, in some pagan Russian locale, is obliged to dance herself to death. Um, it's a sacrificial work, by what its title suggests. Uh, but the sacrifice in question, although horrible, um, accompanied by music that is meant in places to sound horrible, to jar, to irritate, to provoke, to dancing that was definitely provocative, um, this is also a sacrifice that's considered to be an act of atonement. It's an act of atonement for um, what we have taken from the earth. Human sacrifice is a symbolic act in that work that attempts to come to terms with the mysterious and primal forces of nature. Um, because unless nature complies, unless we placate nature within this work, unless the soil is fertile, unless it stays warm, unless nature is bountiful, people will starve and die. So the survival of people depends upon the fertility of the soil. This work, Persephone, is very different. It's also about spring. It's very different in that it is one of Stravinsky's most beautiful scores, and that beauty is enhanced and enriched and deepened by the staging of Peter Sellers. It's also a work that was not famous. It was something of a flop when it was premiered in 1934, owing to disagreements between the very, very um, strong-willed, strident artists involved in this project. That included, of course, Stravinsky, Ida Rubinstein, who actually did the choreography, and André Gide, who did the words. Um, the work also did not succeed because nobody could figure out what kind of a work that was. And great artists actually create works that sometimes take decades and decades to find themselves or to be understood or for something suppressed to actually become known or understood. So it's neither a ballet, nor an opera, nor a cantata, nor an oratorio, nor, 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 nor. It's a modernist thing, it's a shtuk, it's whatever you want it to be, it's a collection of ideas. It's also a work with a great deal of magic, and that magic has been teased out by Peter Sellers in this production tonight. So, it is one of his least known works, it was not famous like The Rite of Spring, and now I think it has found its true home and its true artistic realization. So I'd like now to engage Peter and talk about this composition with you. And um, among the many things I want to talk to you about is, of course, the physical element. Here you have these beautiful dancers, these Cambodian dancers from the Arita troupe. And I guess the first thing to ask you is how you encountered this score, how you encountered them, and what they bring to this composition. Wow. 
<laughs> uh, this guy is Simon Morrison. He's spectacular. He's one of the all-time great musical minds. He dug in to the Soviet archives as soon as Gorbachev opened them up and found all kinds of Prokofiev that we never knew existed, found other irritating things that were composed by committees that we thought were composed by Prokofiev. And um, he's been sorting it all out and revealing new Tchaikovsky, revealing stuff that we never knew existed. So this is the guy. Um, <clears throat> it's, uh... Just to say, um, uh, this Stravinsky piece is kind of a important. I'm obsessed with the unloved Stravinsky. And, uh, and, and it's unloved because of, of course, first of all, its first lack of love came from dad himself, Stravinsky, who all his life lied about most of his important pieces. He came on with an MO that was completely wrong. Now, if I can just give you a, a short example, his, his autobiography, which of course was entirely ghostwritten, the day, the week that his wife and daughter both die, in his autobiography, it said, we had marvelous concerts in Berlin, and my solo playing of the Capriccio was particularly applauded. We came back for three, three ovations. That is the only entry for that week in his life. So you can see a man who's so determined on success that he's in denial about a lot of other things. And that, of course, is a very poignant refugee story of somebody who needs to be a success no matter what. He gets to Paris, he needs to be a success, photograph with famous people. He's one of the very first artists who's aware of the power of the photograph. And he is, while his wife, who was dying, was starving, he was spending $2,000 a week in Paris on new clothes. So that was very intense, the double life of Stravinsky, what these pieces have in them. And of course, the point is his music doesn't lie just his publicity machine lied. The publicity machine could not speak of the grief, the heartbreak, the loss, the disappointment, the sense of total bereft spiritual desolation that of course the music speaks to. But if you announce those things in 1933 Paris as box office, <laughs> at the Ballet Russe, nobody's gonna come to see a bereft piece of total emotional loss, no. Because to this day, what's being sold on those runways is about invincibility, you know, I couldn't care less about anything, et cetera, et cetera. That's the Parisian style. This piece is so not Parisian, even though it tries to be for a while. The opening choruses, I think of as a review at the Lido with like half-naked girls and, you know, beautiful pink light. What is this about? What is going on? Stravinsky, in his need to collaborate with famous people, even went so far as to collaborate with Andrzej Gide now. Stravinsky left Russia, head of the Bolsheviks, lost everything. Couldn't even mention the word Russia the, most of the rest of his life. Why he needed to be an international composer and never a Russian composer. And very conservative. And when fascism started springing up all over Europe, Stravinsky didn't object. Meanwhile, his collaborator, Andre Gide, is a very well-known Marxist, radical, left-wing 
quasi-liberated gay writer. The two of them, you can't even imagine them having one conversation, let alone two. They actually stopped speaking <laughs> halfway through the collaboration, and the piece shows it. It would have been nice if they could have had two more conversations. Nonetheless, what's going on in 1933-34 in both men's lives and in the lives of the world is the miracle, the Soviet economic miracle, we become aware of what the actual cost is. The show trials, the Stalin show trials, and the scope, the actual extent of the gulag, the West begins to learn what the forced collectivization of the Russian farms meant. And there is Stravinsky in Paris with three fabulous meals a day while his people, the Russians, are mostly starving to death. Even Jid, the big Stalinist apologist, visits Russia in 30, early 34 and can tell that nothing he's saying to the factory workers is being translated. And he writes a little book that's uh, called Return to the USSR. And he says in it, when we had asked for a dictatorship of the proletariat, we didn't just mean a dictatorship. The sheer horror of what's going on in Russia is whispered about. And in both men, this piece is the result. And this piece is, takes as its starting point the Greek mythology. Demeter is the goddess of the harvest. And Stravinsky and Gide kind of instinctively in 1935, as Europe was destroying itself, as Hitler is elected to office, Thirty-three elected. So just to say, democracy at work, just to say, really a crisis, Gide and Stravinsky went back to the earliest ritual of human civilization at the beginning of Greek culture, which is the agricultural ritual, celebrating the harvest, a feminine ritual, the Greek myth is particularly intense and shocking. Demeter's daughter, Persephone, brings the spring. But that's because she has been raped by Pluto, the lord of the underworld, who takes her with him underground. And when Demeter's daughter, Persephone, disappears, all growth on the earth disappears. It's winter. Everything shuts down. Demeter prays for her daughter to return. Human beings pray for Persephone to return. In the middle of hell, Mercury comes with a magic pomegranate and hands it to Persephone. She bites into the pomegranate. The flavors of the pomegranate juice remind her of earth, remind her of sunlight. Remind her of growing things. Remind her of everything she left behind in the human world. She sees her mother running all over in winter, begging for her daughter. So she comes back. And it's quite an intense ceremony, which the Greeks held every year 
on the side of a hill with a beautiful cleft in it, begging Persephone to return so that there will be spring, that there will be new growth, new crops, and renewal. Gide and Stravinsky wanted to set this ritual. That's the last thing they agreed on. The ritual is done very, very strangely and abstractly, but very beautifully. But for Stravinsky and Gide, it also means what it means to go to the other side. Go to hell. Here we are in Paris, surrounded by ease and comfort. What does it mean when you know on the other side of the earth an entire population is starving to death? An entire population is under torture and that Russian villages have been emptied of their inhabitants and are lying there smoldering. Stravinsky writes the music for a courageous woman to go to the other side of the world where people are suffering, to look at what nobody wants to look at, and to be in solidarity with the people whose lives have been taken from them. Most composers, when they're writing music for hell beings, write slashing crazy chords and you know, extreme, extreme um, harmonies. Stravinsky's music for the hell, the inhabitants of hell, is quiet, sober, tender, melodic, deeply, deeply, deeply dignified. He dignifies each person in the hell that they did not choose, offering them a kind of love. There's no drama in hell. There's just unbearable sadness. And Stravinsky's music that characterizes hell and the music that characterizes what is not hell, in fact, are so close to each other, which is like the reality of your life, where heaven and hell are so close to each other in your life every day that one little moment can turn your heaven into hell and one little moment can turn your hell into heaven. And Stravinsky deals with how close heaven and hell actually are. And that if there's a genocide going on on the other side of the world, it's not that it has nothing to do with you, it has everything to do with you. And this distance is eclipsed in real life. There is no distance. And Stravinsky puts the atrocity right next to the tenderness, the warmth of home, the yearning for completeness in your own family. So the score is quite challenging and mysterious. It has lots of, it doesn't really tell a story because the story, Gide kind of messes up the story quite a lot. I'll just quickly tell you that once she comes back with her pomegranate juice, uh, her mother has been offered a young man to raise who turns out to be Demophon who becomes the person who learns to cultivate crops. And Demophon is going to show human beings how to farm. And so she comes, Persephone comes back and says, Demophon, you're my boyfriend. You're it. I'm yours. I love you. I love you. Teach humanity how to farm, please. But by the way, when you embrace me, you have to also know that I'm also the wife of Pluto, king of the underworld. And I love you. I love you deeply here on earth, but I'm sorry, I have to now go back 
to my other people who I also love in hell. And the piece ends with Persephone smiling at everybody here on earth, bringing with her the spring, and then saying, excuse me now, I have to return to hell. It's a shattering piece. The music is not like the Stravinsky you expect, which is rhythmic and aggressive. The music is infinitely tender. There's barely a rhythm in this music. It's all these long, strange, haunted melodies. I really think of them as empty Russian villages with just melodies floating over them once the people have been removed. And, and that's really why I wanted to invite Cambodian dancers to perform this piece because, as you know, living in Los Angeles in the 80s, we, a new population arrived in Los Angeles. Uh, people fleeing the Pol Pot genocide arriving in Long Beach with family members missing, with limbs missing, and, and arriving here and rebuilding themselves. We have the largest population of Cambodians outside of Cambodia here in Southern California. And that United Cambodian community in Long Beach in the 80s, what was so moving was before they started a language training program to learn English or a job training program, they said, no, we first have to have a dance academy so that our children knows what, know what it means to be Cambodian because our Cambodianness is inside the dance. The Cambodian dance is 800 years old, like Notre Dame. It is something that has this deep, deep, deep tradition that is political. It's always been near the royal family, the top of the government, but more than that, it's symbolic and resonant of spiritual values. The dancers themselves are apsaras, angels, heavenly beings come to earth. For every performance of Cambodian dance, the dancers have multiple prayers, ceremonies. It takes four hours to fit, to put on your costume. The training is so demanding, is so exacting, because it's about maximum grace under pressure. All the movement is unbelievably slow and focused. And in fact, the movement is about planting seeds. The seed grows, becomes a plant, there's a flower, and then there's a fruit. But that movement, that gesture is slow, like the speed of a plant growing. But also like everything important in your life, which is really slow. When you meet the person who is going to be in your life, it's a moment, but it's also the next 50 years of your life. And the dance takes every one of these moments and makes you realize you're entering eternity. And as human beings, we're creatures of the immediate, the today's news, but we're also creatures of infinity. That's also the nature of our being. We forget our infinity self because we're so busy with this morning's headlines, but in fact, the infinite is what Cambodian dance is about is the way the infinite is moving through your life at every moment. This dance does not respond to rhythm. The dancers do not, in Cambo with Cambodian music, ever respond to the rhythm of the orchestra. They respond to long line. It's all about how do you sustain a long, beautiful, melodic line. How do you sustain, 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 sustain? sustain. 
How do you fill with energy, love, care, concentration, tenderness, attention every moment of your life? So this Cambodian dance, we're very fortunate to have four extraordinary dancers. One of those dancers, Satya, who dances the role of Persephone tonight, she is one of those first dancers who was, you know, Pol Pot shot and killed every Cambodian dancer because they, for him, represented the regime. Only two women survived, and they lived for five years in pigsties, hiding. And when the killing stopped, these two women came out and trained a new generation of dancers from young people. One of those young people was Satya, who came to Los Angeles in the Los Angeles Festival in 1990 when we invited this group of dancers after the genocide, their first trip outside of Cambodia after the killing. The State Department created special visas to get them here. And these dancers made their world debut in Los Angeles. So Satya's back, and she's now a beloved, respected senior figure in Cambodian culture. And there are with her three younger dancers. Uh, you'll see uh, her mother, is, Demeter, is played by, by uh, Belle, who's actually trained as a male dancer. That is to say, in Cambodian dance, there are no men. All the roles are taken by women. All the male roles are taken by women because everything's better if it's done by women, of course. <laughs> and so you don't want to see those guys. So the handsome men are like Belle, who just is so beautiful you can't believe it. Then the evil men are the giants, and you'll see Narim is the giant, who makes these long, slow movements. Giants are big and powerful and evil and therefore sad, and they cry a lot. And Cambodian culture shows you sad giants like major multinationals. And then, and then the other thing that is really amazing is one man is allowed to dance, but all the men have to be monkeys. So you will see, you will see Mo, who dances the role of the king of um, Pluto, the king of hell, uh, is of course a monkey at heart. So you'll get all of that. The other thing you'll get is the gorgeous LA Master Chorale just ravishing, ravishing in the tenderness and just heart-rending fragility of this music. And you'll get the Los Angeles Children's Choir, who we adore, 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 adore. And Stravinsky said, okay, if the world is gonna end, could we please hear from the next generation? <laughs> and so this beautiful sense of young people suddenly filling the stage is just, such an act of renewal and generosity, unmitigated joy. And Stravinsky goes there. And, and that's really where the piece arrives. I should just mention one other thing is that, you know, the storytelling is symbolic because it's really not so much about the story. That's the way myths function. It's different from a TV show or a novel. A myth is actually a ritual that permits us to reflect on our situation and brings a community together in a time of crisis. My friend Bill Viola likes to say, you know, his definition of a myth is it's the form you fill out at the DMV. <laughs> 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 you 
you have to write your name at the top, your address, where you went to school, because it's about you. <laughs> it's like the definition of theory is something you need to have in order to use the washroom. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, just to say, the, what is beautiful about the storytelling on the part of Stravinsky and Gide, but also the ancient Greeks, is that by definition, stories are abstract. By definition, myths are abstract and don't exactly make sense, except in a much deeper way than the news. Because the news really doesn't make sense either. So could we look deeply, get beyond our own limitations of logic, and notice what's really going on around us in large structural terms? And that's where Stravinsky's music is alive. And one of the things that, Simon, you're going to say that, right? Go. More or less. Go, well, go, go, go. Uh, I, I, I just want to, I, I want to probe a little bit about this, this the, the nature of the word here, Gide's words and Stravinsky's uh, handling or mishandling. But one of the things I was struck by, we're all thinking about Paris this week, or a lot of us, and uh, it's a city of catacombs, uh, canals, drains, ditches, uh, a city that's like St. Petersburg, a, a palimpsest. It's a text built on a lot of texts. And um, Hades, as uh, Peter was saying, is, is not, a, not a bad place. It's a sad place. And the music down there is actually more beautiful than the music above. There's something irritated about the music above in the real world, as though if there's some sort of utopian domain, it's, it's kind of unbearable. Um, but there's an emaciated grace down there. There's a lot of quotations in this score, a lot of borrowings. People say, oh, it's littered with references to Gluck and Apollo and all of this other stuff. Um, and you can hear a desiccated residue of Tchaikovsky if you want down there. Um, but it's about, quotations aren't just bric-a-brac and bricolage and something that you're supposed to guess and find and identify. They are about remembering and forgetting. They're about how music has the power to dissolve time. And uh, as you were saying about this choreography, this, this is not a score um, that is about beats and pulses. This is about a kind of timelessness or its own time, a different kind of hypermeter, if you will, uh, that really needs that choreographic realization. The, I guess, final thing I wanted to ask you about is Mr. Gide's text. Um, I've often thought that uh, Stravinsky, when he sets Russian, when he sets English, and his English was fine, uh, when he sets French, when he sets the sound of barnyard animals, it's kind of the wrong sounds. You know, you have Bernard, you know, in Renard, right? You have a chicken coming out and clucking away, and it doesn't sound like a chicken. It's chuck, chuck, chuck. Um, you have this kind of strange, as though he didn't think words really mattered in the way that we use them anymore, or in the modern era, or something highfalutin or caramel-like about Gide, as he said. Something about that didn't work in the 20th century. And I just wanted to hear what you have to think about his text setting. Well, Gide was so upset by Stravinsky's setting of his text that he broke off all communication and refused to attend the premiere, et cetera, et cetera, and said, my text has been destroyed. Um, Stravinsky was skillful uh, at destroying texts. He knew what he was doing when he was destroying a text. Um, just to say two things. One is your thought that the, that the piece is strewn with all these references weird Tchaikovsky bits and so on. I really think of that as the portraits and the little photographs that you keep on your dresser or by your bedroom, yeah. you know, by your bed or on your desk, is who are the people you want to be remembering across the day who are not necessarily here, but you actually want to take with you at every moment. And that is Stravinsky gathering the people he wants to take with him on the next phase of his journey. 
Stravinsky spent his whole life as a refugee. He had to learn five languages. He arrived in America, his last country, at the age of 75 to learn English and moved into Beverly Hills and started an entire new body of work. What it means is you, if you're, if you're a refugee, you have to keep looking forward. You can't look back. If you look back, you're already lost it. And Stravinsky knows that about refugee etiquette. And the first piece on the program tonight that Esapeka plays so beautifully with the Philharmonic, Orpheus, is exactly about that. If Orpheus has lost Eurydice, the piece begins with Orpheus weeping and then going back to the underworld and saying, could you give her back to me? And his playing is so moving that the spirits of the underworld say, okay, you can have her back. Just here's the blindfold. Don't look at her as you come back to earth. And of course, Orpheus can't resist. And he stops and turns around to look. And she dies a second time. That's very real in the life of so many refugees. That you look back and there's a second death. You look back and another loss. Because everything you're looking back for is actually also gone. And the pain of that is redoubled. Stravinsky knows very well the myth of Orpheus. He knows, okay, you've got to keep playing your music and you've got to keep looking forward and you've got to keep moving forward and you can't look back to check if Russia is still there. So just to say this sense of words, it really has to do with not the words way we think of words is, you know, words make sense. It has to do with the way words don't make sense. It has to do with the way words are used in religious rituals where words have resonance, words have a deeper power than their daily meaning. And Stravinsky uses words as these giant gongs, which he strikes and resonance, 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 resonance pours out of this word and it starts to mean things it never meant before. And you realize that everything has meanings inside its meanings. And its appearance is nothing, but in fact inside its appearance is hiding a whole other set of meanings, a whole other set of lives, a whole other set of experiences. And of course, with, as a refugee, you know that nothing is on the surface. You know that there's a story behind the story, and there's a story behind that story, and there's a story behind that story. All of the real resonance is not what appears on the surface. It's the resonance that only comes through if you can look to what's no longer with us. His chanting of these words is to create a ritual, a ritual in a secular society that brings humanity together at a time of crisis and says, what gestures can we each make understood but also not fully understood? Because we have to admit right now we don't really understand that will allow us to move forward and that will allow us to understand that inside of loss is also rebirth. And Stravinsky takes very literally, and G takes very literally the image from the Bible, since it's Easter tomorrow morning, of the Christian version is the seed that has to agree to lie under the earth, dead so that it can be reborn 
as the golden harvest for a new generation. I just, um, I'm going to ask you one final question. And as, as an artist, uh, this is a work about a place called Hades or hell, or as you pointed out in one of our other talks, um, bad places in the world where people are having a very bad time of it. And the above world, the fertile land, is somewhere else. Um, as an artist, do you think it's the nature um, to, of an artist to actually navigate those worlds, um, the place that's ugly and uh, dispiriting and grim and full of violence and despair, and also the sublime? Because this is a work that seems to take those two categories and sort of confuses them a little bit. And I just wondered how you, as an artist, in terms of your own work and in terms of your encounter with this piece and many years of thinking about it, view that, that problem, the nature and cause of an artist. <laughs> wow, Simon. God, just to say, is it bad in Brazil? Yes. Is it great in Brazil? Yes. Brazil is an unbearable place to be right now, and Brazil is the only place to be right now. I mean, happiness is, doesn't take the usual form. Happiness is not just physical comfort. Happiness is a very deep set of things. For me, one of the most depressing things about the culture that Stravinsky had to join when he came to America, this kind of Hollywood culture, which was disnified culture of a big smile instead of happiness. <laughs> There's no joy. And the joy, of course, comes when you've been through hell. You know what hell is. And you know what hell tastes like. Then you also know what joy tastes like. And if you haven't been to hell, then you're not going to make the joy real. And I think one of the most powerful things about Stravinsky is the quietness and modesty with which he lives in hell. So that the joy is real and not manufactured, not extreme, not overstated. And I think one of the things Stravinsky lived with all his life is how not to overstate things. He was constantly surrounded by cultures that overstated everything. And Stravinsky said, how do we understate this so there's some room for growth, some room for learning, some room for humility, some room for us to acknowledge our limitations and some room for spiritual revelation to take over. And that's where these pieces live. Thank you, Peter, for this experience. And everybody enjoy the concert tonight. Thank you for coming. <laughs>